Okay, well, first, um, we'll keep going. Um, thank you for coming to the UAA Campus Bookstore. I'm Rachel Epstein, the events coordinator. The good news is that we're in, in between sessions, so there's free parking at UAA. You can park wherever you like. Don't have to worry about a ticket. Um, we have some light refreshments for you at the table. You can take whatever you like. The bookstore closes at 6 o'clock during the summer. We have to be out of the front door by 6 o'clock. So please keep that in mind. Um, unfortunately, even if we're in the best conversation you can imagine, I'm going to have to kick you all out. So please, please keep that in mind that we have to be out of the front doors by 6. We do have um, our guest author's book here. We have some copies at the table. If you um, would like to look at it or if you'd like to purchase it, what you can do is you can um, have Alexa sign it, and then before you exit, you can go to the cashier station just before the, uh, the door, the entrance door, and pay for it. You don't have to go downstairs, pay for it, and come back up, okay? Just make it easy for you. This event is being recorded, and it will be on iTunes um, tomorrow in the UA Campus Bookstore section, okay? So you can tell your friends about it who couldn't make it. Um, Alexa, I'll send her the link uh, tomorrow, and you can always contact me, Rachel Epstein, here, and I can send it to you directly if you'd like. Okay, our event. Um, philosopher Alexis Shotwell presents her book, Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times. According to Alexis Shotwell, the world is in a terrible mess. It is toxic, irradiated, and full of injustice. Aiming to stand aside from the mess can produce a seemingly satisfying self-righteousness in the scant moments we achieve it. But since it is ultimately impossible, individual purity will always disappoint. Might it be better to understand complexity and, indeed, our own complicity in much of what we think as a bad, as fundamental to our lives? Exciting, original, and intellectually stimulating, Against Purity makes a clear and compelling argument for politics of relation, relationality that resists the demand for purity. And that is from Lisa Gwenther, author of Solitary Confinement, Social Death, and Its Afterlives. Um, Alexis Shotwell is Associate Professor of Sociology and Anthropology and the Department of Philosophy at Carleton University. She is the author of all, the book uh, Knowing Otherwise, Race, Gender, and Implicit Understanding. So I'm, I'm just very happy Alexis is here, and um, please join me in welcoming her. Thank you. Our human-caused, place-devastating, elevated sea levels, 
our earth-shaking, water-poisoning fracking, our toxic lakes made up of the externalities of rare earth mineral production for so-called advanced electronics, our life and soul-destroying prisons, our oil spills, our children playing with bits of dirty bombs, our white phosphorus, our generations of trauma held in the body, our cancers, and I could go on. This is the depressing part of the talk. Did everyone feel that? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm arguing against purity politics because I think that it's one bad but common approach to devastation in all its forms. This was a bumper sticker popular in Santa Cruz when I uh, was in school there. It says, save the planet, kill yourself. I think that this is a common approach for anyone who attempts to meet the incredible complexity um, and difficulty of situations that are fundamentally outside of our control. It's a bad approach, this approach is a bad approach because it shuts down exactly the things that we need to do in order to have the world continue, in order to live in the world and with the world. So purism in the book, I argue, is a decollectivizing, demobilizing, paradoxical politics of despair. And I think that our world deserves better. So what I'm gonna do is just talk a little bit about why this is a problem, um, and then give you some examples of how we can see that it's just not possible to have individual purity. Um, and then look at three examples from the Alaska context that I think are showing us a, a different way, an alternative approach that, um, that I think is better, and that I think um, can actually recharge us and give us a feeling of possibility and liveliness. So the basic situation is that there are these complex and big problems that um, I think we could say we have impossible responsibilities <coughs> towards. And, and really, I think almost anything that anyone here in this room cares about could be one of these kinds of problems. So the things that come to my mind right now are global warming and climate change, the ways that um, those things, global warming and climate change, are participating in conflicts and wars, globally that are partially mobilized, it seems, from droughts um, and extreme weather events that make it really hard for people to live in their places and, and make their uh, resources very restricted. Um, we could look at how to think about um, the problem of feeding everyone who needs to eat in the world right now, of giving people safe places to live. Um, we could think about what to do about prisons, right? we could think about basically I think almost anything we look at right now um, aside from the question and maybe even the question of like what to have for lunch is actually a big and complex problem that is hard for us to solve. So, so that's a thing that I notice. And, um, and in my philosophical training I have done a lot of work on ethics. And one of the things that you find when you work in ethics in theory is that all of the kinds of problems that you can solve using traditional philosophical ethical methods are um, about individual decision making. So they all come back to the idea that there's an individual knower, willer, actor, and that that's the person we need to get, get right with ourselves and then we're gonna be okay. Um, so those are decisions about um, you know, how we behave toward each other, um, whether it's like ethically permissible to steal something, right? Those are individual ethical decisions. <coughs> but there's a lot of ethical decisions that we are called on to make now. Maybe the world has changed, maybe we just understand better, it's not, I'm not sure. Where just being correct ourselves isn't enough. And actually it's not possible for us to be correct ourselves. So, so call that problem individualism. Does that kind of make sense to everyone, this idea that, that there is a, an idea that individuals can solve problems and that's what we're aiming for, and I'm saying that's not good enough? Okay. Okay. Um, so we need to change our ethical thinking to reckon with the scale of the problem that we're facing. The scale is different and we need different kind of ethics. And let's start by just thinking about eating. Um, because eating is something that we all have to do in order to live. And, um, and it's a, a thing that becomes 
uh, sort of intimate and close to us when we consider the ethical uh, quandaries of it. Um, so, I'm sorry, I should have shown you this meerkat who's doing my you know, impression of individuals in purity. Now, eating, I think, situates us in relation to a social world. Um, in, in eating something, we're eating uh, a product of people's labor, um, people and other beings' labor. We're also eating, whenever we eat something, we're eating the whole world. So if we think about a tomato, and we look at the tomato, we say, well, yeah, that tomato was a seed. You know, and when you plant a tomato seed, it's then kind of amazing that it turns into lots of tomatoes, you know, like sometimes way more tomatoes than you want um, when they're actually available. <coughs> and, and to see how that happens, you say, yeah, it, it started as a seed, and then only if the proper conditions are there does that seed actually become a sprout. Um, only if it has a particular kind of soil, if the temperature is right, if the sun is good, if there's water, if there's particular spectrum of nutrients that tomatoes like. Um, so to make a tomato, you can just see how it holds a world. And then there's all these other things that are happening with the tomatoes that we actually eat, right? So a lot of them have fish DNA spliced in so that they don't rot so quickly. Um, they've been held in particular climates and then, you know, uh, exposed to certain gases in order to ripen, to arrive at supermarkets in a way that they're still edible and then to ripen in such a way that they look red. You know, so there are also these kind of like complicated entities. Um, and we can also say that most of the tomatoes that we eat, if we didn't grow them ourselves, they've been um, grown for us by someone else. They've been picked. Um, they've been shipped, they've been put out for us, someone weighs them. So the tomato actually is a, a really complicated thing. And when we bite it, we, we bite all of that. It also is something that as soon as we eat, um, we're in the middle of something that's also really complicated in terms of asking what's happening when we're eating. So when we bite the tomato, we say, I, you know, I'm eating the tomato. And at some point, the tomato becomes us, right? Um, at some point, we excrete the tomato. We have waste products of our body. We have energy that we get from the tomato, right? So at certain points, we hold the tomato. It's part of our body. At some point, we no longer have that tomato. So it's, it's like, you know, you look at anything, and you can kind of feel like the world is really incredible and weird, and I don't know what part of me is a tomato and what part of me is these other things that I've eaten. Um, and so I think we could think about eating as an example of something where we're just way stations, right? We're just temporary stopping places in this incredibly complex webbing of the world that is material and social and given to us by others. And it just pauses and then it goes on. And if we start to think about the world in that way, it becomes really overwhelming, right? Beautifully overwhelming and really interesting. Um, and so we, we can look at things like um, here on the, the right, there's this picture of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And this was a, a group who, they're still working on campaigns. Um, this image is from a march uh, where they won this incredible win to have the major fast food um, restaurants, Wendy's, McDonald's, Burger King, agree to pay a penny more per pound for tomatoes. So this is the first time that the workers who pick tomatoes in Florida, in Immokalee, Florida, had been given a raise since 1978. They've been picking tomatoes for the same rate. Um, and their, their wages went up a penny a pound because they um, asked this question, whose hand picked your food? Right? So how, how could you be responsible toward them? What would that look like? What would that mean? Um, I remember being in a march. I was living in Santa Cruz. and. Um, someone had made these really beautiful, enormous tomatoes. And so we were just walking down the street with these big cardboard tomatoes. And there were um, police officers, you know, working, the, making sure the cars um, didn't hit us, trying to. And one looked at my tomato and said, that's a really, it was a really grumpy tomato. It was like, it had um, eyebrows that were really, and a frown. And the, the police officer said, that's a really angry tomato. I wonder why it's so angry. You know, and I was like, Ah, why is my tomato, you know, what, what does it feel like to be the tomato that, you know. 
Okay, so eating as an example of this kind of thing. And I think, if you think about anything, like in Alaska I think about this so much, right? Because so many people have multiple and complicated forms of subsistence eating here that interleave really complexly with getting things shipped in from vast distances away or with growing things in greenhouses that use particular kinds of energy. So it becomes something that um, it's very easy anytime you're eating something and you say that you have a principle about why you're eating that thing, it becomes incredibly easy for someone to say, oh, you're such a hypocrite, right? You, you eat hunted meat here, but then you go ahead and eat a burger that came from a factory farm in you know, the Dakotas. So I'm so interested in each of those moments where someone says, you're such a hypocrite, and what they think is gonna happen is that then you're gonna stop claiming any kind of political interest or responsibility for the world. Um, so eating's a, a big one where that happens. Other ones are like, um, you're writing this comment about why you think Pebble Mine shouldn't be um, put into place on your computer that uses metal, right? So it's like, oh, now I'm never gonna say that that mine shouldn't be there again. Good point, you know, person on the internet. Um, so that happens a lot. And, and I'm interested in what it looks like for us to not have hypocrisy be the thing that makes us not do anything in the world. So we, so we talked about eating, we could have talked about a lot of other things, and we can talk about more of them in the discussion. So most of the way that I've been seeing this makes it seem like there's just, we look at anything and it's incredibly difficult and we can't figure it out and we can't fix it and we're failures. Um, and one of the things that I really have been um, interested in is concepts of interdependence from certain indigenous traditions and certain Buddhist traditions. So the quality of um, being connected to things that are painful or that cause suffering or that we would like to not um, be connected to in a lot of Buddhist thinking of interdependence is about recognizing that um, anything that we do has downstream events where it comes to us, we're downstream of things that we wish hadn't happened that way. That someone was caused to suffer or some ecosystem was devastated. So that's a, a way of talking about interdependence as it's called being compounded. Things are put together. This idea of interdependence also is promising or it's, it can be uh, enlivening. It can be something that helps us think. So Thich Nhat Hanh says, if you're a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. So these sheet of papers that my notes on, they, they accidentally printed them on cardstock, so I sort of feel like I'm like giving myself a um, wedding invitation. Very lovely. Um, so think about the sheet of paper. Right? Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. The cloud is not here. The sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. Interbeing is a word that's not in the dictionary yet. But if we continue, but if we combine the prefix inter, the verb to be, we have a new verb, interbeing. The cloud and the sheet of paper inter-are. And he goes on to talk about how it's not just the cloud and the sheet of paper, it's the people who cut the trees, it's the people who melt the pulp, it's the river, it's all the things inter -art. So this gives us a kind of uh, approach to saying, yeah, we're connected, right? We're, and in that sense, we're complicated, we're implicated, we're, um, we're with this world and we can't get away from it. And both in terms of interdependent eating and also any of the material productions of things, I want to just note that it's not just about megafauna, right? So it's not just about how cute, you know, pigs, cute andro-delicious pigs and chickens are. It's also about what do we think about the, the flies? There are these biting black flies in Nova Scotia where my parents live that are incredibly um, vicious. They feel just like mean. Um, but they're also one of the main pollinators for blueberry crops, which are a huge, big deal in Nova Scotia. Or if you think about the microbes and the little critters that live in the dirt, um, what does it look like for us to have an understanding of interbeing that we might have some responsibility and some love for the world at all of its scales? Um, there's a philosopher in 
Kingston, Ontario, who says, I want to ask us, what does it look like for us to have an ethical relationship with our microbiome, um, like our gut bacteria? What would it mean for us to be good custodians for our gut bacteria and feed it things that it really likes? I don't know, right? It's an interesting question. So I think what I'm wanting and what I'm trying to um, shape is this uh, orientation of having an ethics of entanglement, of feeling like we're always inside these relations of suffering and glory, and we can't escape them and we don't want to. That that's just the condition under which we're doing anything that we do. Um, and we can cultivate our capacities. We can cultivate our possibilities, our power, to be in that complexity, in that difficulty. We can become better able to respond when we recognize uh, suffering or a problem or something we want to change. Um, so in thinking about this, for me, it's become really important that we think about and recognize that power doesn't go away because we're entangled or interbeing, right? It actually becomes more important that those of us who have the possibility of making things different have more responsibility, more um, call on us to, to work on changing those things. So responding to being implicated and impure and complex and complicit um, means that we might do best to think about how we can mobilize our own power and our own capacity to change the things that we care about, to make them better, to make them more full of flourishing, is one way I think about it. And I think that the best thing we can do is work together, is work collectively. So I wanted to just give you these um, three examples that I've been thinking about that are not in the book. Um, there are things I've been thinking about over the last year, and especially since being here in Alaska. Before I go into that, are there any questions about just these kind of been throwing a lot of um, concepts and ideas at you. Does anyone want just any clarifying questions? Yeah. What do you mean by purity? Yeah. Okay, so the question is, what do you mean by purity? Um, so by purity, I mean a couple of things. One thing is the idea that anyone is separate from the world um, and that they can be clean, innocent, absolved from any given bad thing. Um, so that's one thing that I mean by purity. Another thing that I mean by purity is the idea that we can be shielded, protected from toxins. So in the book I um, talk a lot about the kind of uh, the move towards saying, oh, um, these pesticides do these bad things, or these herbicides do these bad things, or these endocrine mimicking chemicals do these bad things. Um, I need to protect myself and my family. Um, I need to make sure that we're eating entirely organic and that everything that touches our lips is a glass thing, nothing, nothing plastic. So that's a kind of bodily purity. That's an aspiration for to not be penetrated by things that are going to hurt us. Um, the other kind of purity that I'm really interested in is being absolved from uh, racial oppression. So I think a lot, a lot of my work has been on whiteness. And so race and what it means to try to be a good white person are really entangled. And, and actually like most purity discourses historically, and I can talk about the like history of pur purity as an idea, have also been really about race. They've been about keeping bloodlines clean. Um, they've been about uh, physical separation, segregation, so there's lots of different layers of purity, and I am against all of them. Does that make sense? I mean, we can talk more about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, do I equate purity with sanctimony? Yes. I think that when when we think that we're um, pure, we can be um, tremendously self-righteous. So this is another effect that's like, I'm not, I'm good, right? Like, I've got it worked out, and all you all are bad, right? So that move, the purity move is also that thing that says, I'm good, like, 
Um, so sometimes we call it virtue signaling. Um, so I'm one thing that I'm interested in is what does it look like to be enthusiastic, to be righteous about something without being self-righteous at all. Um, and so yes, sanctimoniousness. You know, so this all might come, like I might be interested in eating and in all of these things primarily because, so I eat vegan, which when you live in Alaska for any length of time is a really weird, really weird thing to do. It's probably the main reason I wrote this book. Um, and, and when you eat vegan, you know a lot of vegans. And I am so irritated by my vegan friends because they really think that they are, many of them, not all of them, many of my vegan friends really think that everyone else is perpetuating incredible suffering and harm through their mode of eating and that just eating vegan saves you from that, solves that. And this is just not true, right? Or at any rate, it means that you're just focusing on megafauna. You're not talking about the worms. You're not talking about the bugs that die just to... So I really have been interested in, like, what does it mean to not be sanctimonious and to say, yeah, for me to live, lots of other things die. And what happens if I actually start from there and not pretend that that's not true? Um, so let me give you these examples of what I'm thinking about in terms of, like, how we work, how we can work collectively, starting from being entangled and being implicated. So um, just to think about the mining, because it comes up so often every time anyone comments on it. Um, so there's this um, Canadian mining company, Constantine Metal Resources. I live in Canada now, and so I'm really interested in how incredibly evil Canadian mining companies are. Um, they, they are like, I think, if there was an entry in the dictionary that was like most evil mining companies, where from? It would be like Canada. Um, so this is true, and Constantine Metal Resources, I think, is one. So they're doing this um, exploration that they're confusingly calling the Palmer Project, although it's just 60 miles outside of um, Haines, uh, which is right alongside um, the Clanhini River, which is a tributary of the Chilkat River, which uh, you probably know this more than I do. I, we came up through Haines, and so, so the Chilkat's an open river. It stays open, and it has a lot of chum salmon, and for that reason, it has a lot of eagles, and it's got an eagle refuge there because they can live, they can eat, you know, through when lots of other things are frozen. Um, it's a really beautiful river. And this mine that um, Constantine Metal Resources is wanting to put in right on this tributary has a lot of copper, and it's also got high sulfide um, concentrations. And one of the things that that means is that when you put a tailing pond in, if that tailing pond um, breaks, which they all do, uh, you get a real influx of heavy metals, especially copper, in combination with sulfides that um, increase the bio biological uptake of those chemicals when they're in the waterway. So, you know, really what they're doing is, is arguing that they should be able to open this incredibly, um, this mine that will be devastating uh, if the tailings ponds breach. Um, and that would, you know, really devastate the salmon in that um, very clean, very beautiful river, and then would do away with the, um, the eagle population. And the place where these rivers meet um, is a, one of the indigenous villages that apparently has been sort of longest established in that place. Um, it's called Klukwan, which apparently translates as a termal village. So there's been a village there in that place um, for you know, more than a thousand years as far as they can tell, and, and the oral history puts it at, at longer. So we were visiting um, a friend in Haines on the way up, um, who some of you know, Rebecca Brewer, and she was talking about this mine, and I said, what are they planning to mine? And she said, I don't even care. <laughs> um, she said, I started really thinking, though, about what I um, wanted, right? Like, what I could contribute to the fight against this mine. And she said, what I came up with was this um, slogan. So she makes salmon leather. And she said, I'm, I'm interested in this idea that we could have wild salmon forever. And so this image um, is actually from a BC campaign that's also called Wild Salmon Forever. And what I think is really interesting about this and really beautiful about this idea, so, so Rebecca's selling salmon leather products that she then donates the money to the people that are organizing against the mine and that are organizing to, um, to try to make this a protected waterway, um, is that when you say, what would it look like to have an eternal village, a village that could be sustainably living there forever, 
or to have wild salmon forever. To say that you're wanting that actually um, calls up all these questions, right? Salmon are unregulated. What, what, does that, what does it mean to protect them? You know, what does it mean to have um, waterways that could sustain them? It's actually a global, that's a global aspiration to have wild salmon forever. And it's um, beyond what I think anyone really can personally conceive of. But it's really generative in that way, right? Because as soon as you start thinking about it, you think, yeah, what would that look like? What would we need if we want that? And what other good things, what other things would happen? And are they things that we want or are they things that we don't want? Right? So, it, so posing that question, like what does wild salmon forever mean, opens lots of things up. And among other things, it's like, well, so people need jobs also, right? So what kinds of jobs produce what kinds of worlds? Um, so this work, I think, is really interesting, and it's something that's happening right now um, in, in Haines. So second example. Um, this is um, my, my friend Luke Mel has started this project called Stickers for Conservation, and he let me bring a few of them, which I'll pass around so that you can see um, and see what they look like. So the idea of stickers for conservation, so this is from Luke's website, um, which if you go to things to look at, um, L-U-C, and click conservation, you can get here. Um, and what it says is, donate any amount to any conservation. Um, call your representatives. Phone calls are more effective than emails. Write a letter. Share this campaign. Um, then write to me, and he'll send you the newest sticker. Um, I also like that he says, other. If you think you deserve a sticker, you probably do. Make a claim. <laughs> so he has this list of here are some of the things. This is a non-exhaustive list. Anyone that you want to, to work with, you can make a donation to any of these. Here are Alaska-specific ones. Here are national ones. Um, and here are these stickers made by Alaskan artists who are doing beautiful work. Um, and you can get one as many times as you want to. So what I love about the stickers for conservation is that there's this running total, he's <laughs> coming in, um, there's this running total of how much money has been brought in. And what's really fascinating about it is it's both the um, individual people saying, yes, I want to do that, and then it's connecting them to collective organizing that's happening. So at all different kinds of scales, right? So whether that is, this is an organization that does lobbying, or this is an organization that directly organizes people to defend particular places. This is a here in this place, or in these other places, or this is federal level funding. So it's like whatever you want to connect with, wherever your, um, wherever your spark of interest is, wherever the thing is that calls you, you can connect. And one of the things that Luke was saying was that um, because they're also this visible marker, then people connect to each other. They say, where did you get that incredibly beautiful sticker? Oh, it's the Stickers for Conservation. So then also there come to be these little pods of people, right? So you have like a town that there's three people who have put in a claim for a sticker for conservation. So this is, you know, it's, um, does everyone know that term rhizome? It's like when, when you have something that's connective and lateral and it's, can't predict it and you can't be like this is the way it's going to go but it's like people's affinities and people's passions spark this possibility of being more connected and feeling more inspired right um, so there's all these ways that I think that that um, seeds you know this kind of aspiration for that kind of flourishing and and being responsible for the way that we're entangled with the world that we love and want to go on so third example, I'm living in Homer until July, and there's been this um, really contentious, um, there was a, a motion that city council brought, a, a, you know, someone who lives in Homer approached their city councilor and said, I'd like you to bring an inclusivity motion or a sanctuary city motion, and the councilors, as they're supposed to, said, okay, we, we'll bring that to council. Um, they wrote up a this motion, they changed it from being a sanctuary city motion to being an inclusivity motion. And then there was this kind of incredible flap and hoopla, 
and the three councillors who sponsored the resolution, there's a major recall um, campaign against them right now. Um, and it's uh, done under the banner of Make Homer Great Again. Um, and there's like bumper stickers with You're Fired with the three councillors' names on them. And people are really, it's really intense in Homer right now. People who have liked each other for years are suddenly like not speaking. Um, and so um, a group of folks got together at the library and started making these hearts, um, just cutting out of paper and putting them on um, tongue depressors, and then started going to city council meetings, so with the hearts. Um, and really making a huge presence in city council meetings. Um, so more, you know, more people are coming. City council meetings, I don't know if you've ever been to one, they are so boring um, for like 95% of the time. And then all of a sudden there's like something really interesting that happens. So more people are going to city council meetings than normally go. And many of them are coming with this heart. And so what this heart means differs, right? People mean different things by it. A lot of people just mean... I support this inclusivity motion, or I support these particular counselors. It's hard to be in city government. But a lot of people also are saying, I want our community to be a community where everyone feels the love, right? I want, I want this place where I live to be a place where there's this quality of, of heart. Um, and so it's, so it's been interesting, because it starts with this just kind of image, this heart. And then people have, some people are wearing them around town, some people have them on their cars. Um, and then people start to have conversations together that usually start with like, this isn't the way I want Homer to be. This isn't how I remember Homer being. Um, so there's a groups of people that are trying to, you know, oppose the recall. There's groups of people who are trying to talk about like, how did we get to this place where people are saying horrible things about each other, right? Like, what, what would it mean to mend that? Um, so it's actually opened into this question of like, what are we to each other, right? And what do we want to be? So I think that these examples, um, they're useful, I think, for us because they signal this way that coming together to do something is always going to be more useful, it's going to be more effective than not, than trying to do something alone, right? And trying to be just like right, personally right. Um, it also, working with people in this way, gives us a kind of confidence. It reminds us that there are other people who care. So we don't have to feel so alone. And in the best places, they can, it can be something that we can do together to whatever capacity and inclination we personally have, right? So some people hate going to protests. Some people love going to protests. Some people hate calling their elected officials. Some people love calling their, right? So there's all different things that people can do. And Part of it I think I, I get from this work in homeroom, which is what it looks like for people to really practice making the world that they want to live in. So to practice like talking together in a way that creates a world that they can feel livable in. So to step back again and just close, um, so the, the book's called Against Purity, and it's, it's against, it is against purity. Um, but I want to just sort of hope that it's clear that the againstness is about being for, um, right? Being for a world where we're connected, where people and beings and ecosystems can flourish, can go on together, um, can help each other live more beautifully, more magnificently. I think that if we're orienting ourselves toward flourishing, toward this kind of contingent proliferation of ways that it's good to be, um, toward surprise, that this can actually open us into a world that we can't predict, we can't know exactly what it's gonna look like, but we can wish for it anyway, right? We can want that world. And I, I've been doing these interviews, uh, um, uh, oral history project about the history of AIDS activism in Canada. And one of the things that I um, have heard from people is that a lot of them, when they were really intensely involved in activist work to try to keep themselves and their friends alive, they didn't actually imagine what it would be like to live they so that when I'm talking to them you know 25 years later they're like I didn't know how to go on after you know effective drugs existed I just didn't know what life would look like I hadn't didn't imagine I would still be here that my friends would still be here and so I think that um, it's good for us to have this sense of like things 
many things for many people feel very, very bad right now. Um, but what does it look like for us to imagine that we might get through and that the world could continue and it could still be magnificent? So to return to the mortar of the beginning, I think that Frodo and Samwise might not always have thought that they were going to make it out of Mordor, right? If anyone remembers the books or the movies. But they kept trying. <laughs> like, they kept going. I mean, eventually the eagles swoop in, right, and bring them out. Um, but it's through trying that we have a chance to make it through. So to be against purity is to start for, from an understanding of our implication in this compromised world, to recognize the really vast injustices informing our everyday lives, and from that understanding to act on our wish that it were not so. We can't predict what might emerge from individual and collective practices of staying with the trouble that we're in, except that it holds the possibility of another world, still imperfect and impure, and another one after that. The possibility of other worlds hospitable to hosting many worlds might be beyond our capacity to imagine. But such a possibility can only arise because of our imperfect attempts to make it so. Thanks. Oh. Do you want to take a break before we have discussion? Oh, not really. I mean, I feel like it's good to know if there's anyone who has And I'll just, I'll repeat questions back so that everyone can hear. Yes. How do you navigate or how do you suggest people navigate? Maybe some issue that they care about. But when you start thinking about all these layers of complexity, it makes you doubt. Like, do I really know what's right? So I'll give you an example. I just went to the festival that they had, and they had this And so they were saying that this executive order that Obama had signed in 2013 banned ivory, and it's put them in this um, very difficult position because it's threatening like their natural uh, customs. Yeah. And so, you know, if I had seen that probably in 2013, yes, let's get rid of that. Right. But then I'm, I'm unknowingly taking an action that's now very detrimental to those communities. And so, so I'm just wondering, like, when you think you know about an issue and you feel passionately about that, but you want to give yourself pause, but then you realize, look, I don't have a PhD in every possible way that this, you know, that the downstream effects. So then I guess I start feeling more paralyzed. Yeah. Like, I, okay, I just don't know enough to. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So I'll summarize the question and I won't do it justice. But so what do we do when we um, realize that we think we know what the right thing to do is, but we learn later, or we predict that we will learn later, that there's complicated downstream effects that we couldn't account for at the beginning. And so I think this example of when Obama banned ivory production, um, which might have seemed like a great thing, walrus ivory protecting that, you know, that then it turns out that indigenous people who make walrus ivory carvings are really adversely affected in a, yeah. So this is a really beautiful question. So two things. One is that um, I think we really should have a, a kind of um, gentleness and a quality of forgiveness for ourselves and other people, recognizing that it is inevitable that we're going to make really big mistakes. So part of the thing that fuels that kind of desire to be individually pure is the wish that we wouldn't ever make a mistake, that we wouldn't ever get called out on something, that we thought we were doing the right thing and it turned out to be the wrong thing. And I think really when you look at the world, most people think that they're doing the right thing. You know, people that I think are doing terrible things think that they're doing the right thing. So, and I think, I've done lots of things that I thought were absolutely the right thing that ended up being real mistakes. I was wrong or I just didn't think it through or, so, I, so it's been interesting for me to sort of ask, like, what does self-forgiveness look like as a, like as a predisposition for taking political action. Um, so that's one, one piece. Um, and that means that we cultivate the capacity also to take responsibility when we mess up, to apologize well, to like own, own what, what we did, but not let that be the last thing we do. Um, in the work that I do about white people trying to respond to racism, 
I really see this in myself and in other right friends that will be like, oh, I did a racist thing. I am so sorry. Can we really work on how sorry I am? How much I want you to process with me how sorry I am? Can I be absolved of the bad thing that I did, right? Which then is just like very tiring for the, you know, the person. It's, and it's not appropriate, right? Like it's so, anyway. So one is just recognizing that it's going to happen and having that not be such a big deal. Um, but second is um, setting some, um, I think of them as norms, right? Setting some um, baselines that we make decisions based on. So the main one that I am interested in right now that I, that I try to work out in the book is um, this idea that what we want to do is action that proliferates flourishing for beings. So when you set that, you realize there's, um, that's actually really complicated. So if we think about, um, okay, we're going to stop um, walrus harvest and we're going to stop ivory production, walrus ivory production. It looks like that's proliferating flourishing for the walruses. Um, but it turns out to shut down flourishing for indigenous people who have been in co-relation co with Rawlerses for much longer than the United States has existed. So actually asking, like, what proliferates flourishing might have different answers for different people. So you might say, in the Canadian context, the indigenous seal hunt should exist. It's a good thing. The commercial seal hunt maybe shouldn't exist. And those things don't contradict each other because they're not about the seals, they're about the relationships. Right? So how do we proliferate relationships that produce flourishing? So a baseline, I think, right now for us in this continent is, does this thing, does this thing actually sustain indigenous sovereignty? So like a lot of the answers to a lot of the problems that we're facing, if like the people who live at that intersection of the rivers, if they're able to say, this is an eternal village, and you need to respect it, then that mine can't be there. Um, and then we may have to make different decisions about how we get copper, right? So, so it, you know, so I have my answers for what sets norms that I'm going to be like. That's that's the norm that proliferates flourishing, but I think it'll be different for different people. Um, yeah. Thank you for that question. Yeah. does become overwhelming because even whenever that happens for me, it's like whatever this thing that I feel called. So so I guess I, my, one of my questions is, is your contention that each individual feels a calling to a certain thing? Mm -hmm. Because we all have a idea of what to do. And then at what point does just that calling itself indicate uh, our own privilege? Because then it goes back to, okay, I care about this cause, which is very important to me, and I'm completely ignoring the people of Alipo or, you know, yeah. whatever, that, that is amazing yeah. and, and dehumanizing or the feeling that, that, yeah. that I'm dehumanizing a complete set of people who are suffering More. much greater injustice yeah. than what I'm fighting for. So yeah. it's this, can I ever win yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, so also such a such an important question. So so if we're caring for something, if we're taking up an action, um, how should we reckon with the fact that that probably means we're ignoring whole worlds of suffering that deserve to be healed, attended to, mended? Um, can our expression of caring for something just be our own little privilege thingy? Yeah, this is really... And this is also one of those main things that comes when you say, well, I think that this shouldn't, this should, this is bad, you know, let's change this, let's have this not happen, and then someone says, but this other thing's much worse, why aren't you caring about that? Yeah, so I think that that move to be like, oh, you have your little thingy, but what about this much worse thingy, that you're a hypocrite, right? So it's the hypocrite, so whenever someone brings the hip, you're a hypocrite, then you can be like, ah, probably relying on a narrative of individual purity, right? because everyone is a hypocrite in that line. So I just want us to be like, hypocrisy is not the worst thing that has ever happened in the world, right? 
And my basic belief is also, so this comes back to this idea that nobody lives everywhere and everybody lives somewhere. And I'm comfortable with the idea that in the place where we are and with the kind of um, attachments, the proximities, the histories that we have, that we actually can be very useful in that world. So, so yeah, I mean, it's basically, I think, just to say we can't work on everything. Um, we can't responsibly work on everything, actually. Trying to do that only produces people who aren't doing very effective work, who never learn well the context that they're working in, who don't build good relationships with each other and with people that they're standing in solidarity <laughs> with. Right? So the only way for us to be effective is really for us to be partial. And if we just have more people doing the work, partiality isn't going to be a problem. Um, and also, you know, it's, it's like the, my experience of doing organizing work is that it's connective. So there comes to be more and more things that you're, you're connected to and you can be in response to. But again, like, you know, contingently, um, partially. I also don't feel like there's any, you know, I don't feel like there's any point in the sort of vision that the way we're going to tell that we're doing a good job is that we're totally exhausted. Like I, so I'm, I do really feel like, you know, I see a lot of people feel like if they're not totally wiped out, they're not good, they're not doing good political work. Um, and it's like if just having a few tired people solved all of the problems that the world is facing, we would be good by now. We have tried that. Right? So what we actually need is many, many people caring about many, many things, partially, contingently, in a way that lets us flourish too. Right? So if we're willing flourishing for the world, we also are allowed to flourish. And we just also want the salmon and the eagles and the other people and the algaes, you know, to also flourish. Or so yeah, so I guess it's like I've I've moved now to feeling like it's okay for us to have a little thingy. And that that might be the only way that we can be um, really connected, and that our little thingies can connect with other people's little thingies. That's where I'm at now with it. Yeah. Wow, thank you for that question. The common dilemma. Right. So the commons dilemma where if everyone is making decisions that work for them, um, it ends up actually eating into the collective good. Um, so, you know, I think that in some real way we have to recognize that the dilemma of the commons arises in the way that it does because of capitalism. So in a world that's organized around private ownership and around the idea that the only possibility for abundance is taking other people's stuff, um, that's, the that's the world in which we see this kind of um, problem, right? So none of us are actually working in a situation where there's a true commonly held um, goodness, right? Or a true commonly held um, resource right now. We're working in a world where there are things that get called the commons, but they're actually really partitioned and really um, over-extracted by people who are trying to make lots more money than they need. Um, so, so if we look at you know, the studies that show that if any resource extraction company was actually paying the full amount of what, if, if we included the externalities, right, the things that get set aside. So, um, so if you really, like I lived in northern Ontario on a nickel mine. So if the mine that poisoned that city had actually had to pay for the water, right, like Sudbury, Ontario is where they discovered acid rain. Um, if, if, they had ha if INCO had had to actually structure in the cost of what was done to that land and those people, they would never have been making money. So if, if the mine had been owned by the people who lived there, right, if it was commonly held by them, 
So there it's a Tikmashing and a Shnabek. People who actually are, that is their land. Um, you would have a really, we would have a different story about who was wealthy, right? They took so much money out of that land and they left the people there with nothing, with cancer. So I think we can't really ask the question about the commons in some real way under current organizations of resources. Um, and I think that that's a, it's like for me, it's an aspirational question, right? What would it look like? Because people I know who's, who do sustainable livelihoods, they have an experience of abundance, right? Like there are so many salmon here, you know? So then we want to ask why, why does this, why does Constantine model resources get to decide that there will be no more salmon? Um, like we all should have more decision making in that, I think. So after we abolish capitalism, then I will be able to answer that question. <laughs> So, so I just, if you're going to make this as simple as possible, just, you know, would it be a question of what, of like attention and what you want, even if what you dream, what you want? I mean, would it be at that level of... Like how do you find something that you're going to care about and work or on? Or maybe you don't even have to think, maybe you just care, you know, yeah. or it could be a gut thing, or, yeah. or it can be mental, like you care about, or what you want. You want to have, you, know, you want, you know, I want to have salmon, I mean, I, what you want. And then you could proceed to all these other, you know, complexities. I mean, I'm just trying to at the, at the very yeah. simplest level, you know, of how yeah. to where, where it begins. Or does it begin with other people? You know, like how I'm trying to just yeah. myself with, you know, connections with people. I mean, I love salmon, right? But, but the people part, you know, this human, you know, as a human being, it seems more and more elusive. You know, like it's getting more abstract kind of things. Right. So maybe when I was younger, I didn't question, you know, just even question. So I'm just wondering how, from the bottom, <laughs> or from right. the basics, what would you say the most important principles, like the most important bottom line? Yeah, so I think the most important principles for me yeah, are... Just, could you repeat the oh, sorry, so a question, the question was, so if we're going to really simple, simplify this, like bring this down to the sort of basic level, do, do we start with, like, what do we want? How do we, how do we think about how to set priorities, how do we have other people involved and other critters involved uh -huh, like in our, our political activity? Is that a good way uh -huh. to summarize that? Yeah. So, you know, so I don't have all of the answers. So I'm just, this is just my answer to this. Um, so I think that the way that we decide is first based on this sense of like having some trust that we actually can care for the world and that what we want or what we care for is worthy of care, right? That that's actually, I, I mean, I was saying it as people's little thingy, and that's maybe, it sounds a little diminutive, but I actually mean like, we each have different things that spark us, mm -hmm. and I have some trust in that. I feel like that's a kind of, that's about how, how do we connect? And it has to be there, because otherwise it's just conceptual. It's just some, some idea of what we should care about, what we should do. And so I definitely think we can't have lives where we're just like, Sort of like, I have to go do sign this petition now because I'm supposed to care about this animal. So the this, this sort of spark really matters. But then the other thing is this quality of like according other beings and other people kind of equal significance. So really taking seriously that they might want to live as much as I want to live. They might want to have good lives as much as I want to have good lives. And so then asking like, what does it look like to create a world in which as many beings, as many ecosystems, as many worlds as possible can flourish. So a world that can have many worlds, right? And, and then we, we sort of ask, well, what does that open, right? And I think, I mean, maybe I'm being too polemical about capitalism, but it's like, I don't think that Constantine Metal Resources' vision of the world is hospitable enough to other worlds. Right? They're basing their idea of what the world should be on the, you know, the fiction that a tailings pond never breaches. So, so, some, so saying that we want worlds that can contain many worlds does mean that some people's aspirations get shut down. So it's not innocent, right? It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not pure. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, so, it, it, you know, so for the philosophy heads in this, there's this wonderful book by Simone de Beauvoir, existentialist ethicist, called The Ethics of Ambiguity. And she says, the only way that we have freedom is because other beings open freedom to us. 
and we open freedom to them. And for her, freedom is the capacity to unfurl your potential that you can't predict. So it sounds very heady, but it's like, you know, what does it look like to unfurl the salmon's potential that they don't know can exist? We definitely know that if they're, if they're swimming through acidic waters, they don't spawn. And that shuts down their possibility, you know? So, so yeah, it, I mean, it's maybe abstract, but I, for me, it's actually felt like, ah, I can, I'm excited about this, and I believe that it does open more possibility for other beings. And those are the things that I feel really good working on, mm-hmm. personally. Maybe the last one, and then we can have some time for mixing. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, I'm a fellow Canadian. Okay. And so I, I'm disturbed by the uh, representation of the, uh, of the, the mining companies. No, I'm not disputing that. I'm just kind of surprised because I was raised as a Canadian, or maybe it was just my, my family, I don't know, but to be very communitarian in my thinking. Yeah. Like, don't put yourself first. Think about other people. My father, the, the one word he would often use all the time, me and my brother was that's unkind it's uh-huh. unkind and so whenever I, I'm doing something that's self-motivated if, if something else is being injured a person a, an animal or insect I think well that's unkind you know uh-huh. um, but I, I was thinking about that in the context of capitalism and how in the U.S. it seems that people are raised to be very individualistic but we do have examples of societies you know I'm thinking of Scandinavia where there is still profit, mm-hmm. there's private ownership of the means of production, but yet there's also a strong sense of communitarianism. And so can these two, can capitalism and communitarianism coexist? And do you think it could ever happen in this country? Right. So, um, complicated question, gloss it. Um, so uh, thinking about whether, you know, there are lots of countries where there are capitalist, I mean, most countries right now are run on capitalist principles, and yet there are some that have more kindness in terms of how people relate to each other and how the state and the collectivity holds the people that live there. And for sure, when I, so um, I was born in Colorado and then moved to Canada and Nova Scotia and then back to the US. Every time I've gone back to Canada, there's this quality of relaxation for myself. It's partially been because like a lot of the time that I've lived in the US, I didn't have health insurance, right? I, I moved back to Canada in, um, 2006, um, 2007, 2007, 10 years ago. So, um, so yeah, I mean, so for me, one of the things is, I don't even know what, like Frederick Jameson says, we've come to this point where we can imagine the end of the world much more easily than we can imagine the end of capitalism. Like, I don't know what it looks like, and I don't know how we would get from here to there. But I definitely think that we could have a lot more kindness, and really, it's very practical, right? Like, it's, and it's actually still, it's also happening in the U.S. So one of the things that I find most um, tragic and horrifying is the number of people who come across my you know, screen who are doing GoFundMe projects for very basic health care, right? Like to, to have enough money to pay for their insulin, um, to, right, to have enough money to pay back. Like um, one of my friends just had a... Uh, unexpected hospitalization. She's a grad student, and she has a $2,000 hospital bill, and she doesn't have the money to pay that. And she has insurance, right? She has a $2,000 hospital bill because it's 10% of the cost of her stay in hospital. So, you know, when I look at sort of how people respond to those kinds of health crises, it's like people, and usually people who don't have enough money themselves, respond with incredible generosity. You know, like, people have the urge to help each other. They want, we want each other to live, mostly, right? And so for me, it's really just a question of like, how do we, how do we create more of that? So it's not like how popular are you on social media gets you insulin, <laughs> but it's actually just like being alive and part of our world means that we want you to have basic health care. And in the Canadian context, you know, it's like there's socialized medicine, which is very imperfect. And because I've been doing this work on, on the history of AIDS activism, I've come to really understand how imperfect it is, right? And that and that being much better in certain ways doesn't mean that it's great, right? So so that like Canada's so much better in so many ways. But if you apply to immigrate to Canada and you have a disability, you'll get rejected, right? So it's not a it's not <laughs> a deal. Um, but it's like 
it's much cheaper to go to hospital. You just, you can go to the doctor, you can get preventative care. Getting preventative care reduces the costs of health care dramatically, right? So there's some things that are kind of like very simple, you know, and it's just, how do we work on it? But yeah, maybe even like, I, I think of proliferating flourishing, proliferating kindness could be another way to, to say, like, what would it look like for the, so, the social relations that we're in to not be unkind social relations? That's nice. Okay. So. 20 minutes till we get, have to get out. So yeah, thank you so much. It's been um, such a... Such a privilege to talk to you, and I just really appreciate all your questions. Thank, Thank you so much. You.